So we're looking in Luke chapter 23. We're going to look at a few verses uh, this morning. Spend a bit of time looking at that. Um, As part of our series, for a few weeks on different occasions, we've been looking at the events of the weekend when Jesus died on the cross. Um, We've looked at a whole number of aspects to how that unfolded. Uh, Today, uh, we have arrived at the verses that describe Jesus' death uh, on the cross. So we're going to read those uh, and then get into uh, the rest of this message. So we're looking at Luke 23 and verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had um, followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. As we have... um, looked at the various different aspects to the the Easter story, the Easter weekend when Jesus died. We've been looking mainly at the question, why did Jesus die? Why was it that Jesus went willingly to the cross? What was God's intention? What was God's plan in this? Why did it happen? And we've seen a whole number of different aspects to that answer. It's like uh, looking at a priceless diamond, you can stand back and admire it as one thing. When you get closer to it, you can see that it's made up of lots of different sides, lots of different facets. You can see it um, from different angles, and the thing becomes even more glorious. In a sense, that's what we've been doing. We've been looking at answers to that question. Why did Jesus die? Uh, so the recap to the answer so far, Jesus died to be our perfect sacrifice, our Passover lamb. The one who would die so that we would be free, that we'd be rescued from judgment. Jesus died also to be our example, to be our hero, if you like. The one to, um, to aspire to, the one to follow, uh, the one who's gone ahead of us, the one that we want to emulate and imitate in every aspect of our lives, our, our example, our hero. He also died to be our substitute. In other words, he took our place. And so the punishment that we deserved for our sin, Jesus took upon himself so that we could receive all the blessings uh, that he deserved. So he became our substitute. And more recently, we looked at how Jesus, by dying on the cross, became our compassionate savior. The one who came to die to show that God cares. The one who came to die in order that we might have full forgiveness and eternal life with him. Wonderful answers, wonderful gifts that God has given to us in Christ by him dying on the cross, and yet uh, there, is, there is more. God doesn't just want us to receive certain gifts. He wants us to know him who is the giver. And so the answer that we're looking at today is this. Jesus died on the cross so that we can know God. And if there's one point that you get hold of today, 
there's one thing that you can remember as a result of what we uh, look at this morning. Remember this. Jesus died on the cross so that we can know God. So that we can know the presence of God, the, the nearness of God. It's more than just forgiveness. It's more than just being in a, in a different kind of legal position before God. It's, Jesus died on the cross so that wherever we are, so that whenever and whoever we are, we can know God. The Christian faith is more than just a certain set of beliefs and practices. It's a relationship. It is knowing God. So in your house at home, you might have uh, photos on the wall. Uh, In my room, I have photos of different members of my family. Those photos are there to remind me of the people I love, uh, the people who love me, to remind me that I have a relationship with that person. So I have a photo there. But I don't have the relationship with the photo. The photo's just there as a reminder. I have a relationship with real people. And so in God, we, have, uh, we might get to know more about him. We might get to know more of what's in the word. But all of that is so that we know him in person. A real relationship with a real God who really wants to know us. It's like having your cake and eating it. So imagine right now, someone has, has treated you. And they said, look, I, I want you to, to go out and, and buy for yourself Put your feet up, have a nice time, and go and choose the nicest cake you can find. Sit back, maybe have a tea or a coffee along with it. You go and choose the best cake you can find. Wonderful. So I go to the shop. We go to the shop and uh, try and think right now, what would be the thing that you would most want to eat? You've been given the money. What's, what, what cake? Maybe cake isn't your favorite thing in the universe, in which case uh, pick something else. But for me... And because I'm preaching, I'm going to subject you to my imagination, which is I want a cake. And, uh, and I decided that I, I want actually not just any old cake, I want a muffin. And I want not just any old muffin, but I really quite like uh, lemon muffins, okay? okay? Okay, forgive me, but that's what I'm going for. You can go for whatever you want. Um, so I go up to uh, the person serving, I say, yeah, I'll have a coffee, and can I have a, a lemon Muffin as well. And they say, fantastic, that will cost you a small mortgage. Uh, No, they say, um, lemon muffin, good choice, sir. Contrary to all what you think. Um, (laughs) Lemon muffin, that is, can I just compliment you? That is an excellent choice. Um, Because the the mixture of muffin, it's slightly denser than a cake, but it's still moist and light and refreshing on a a hot day like today. And the the tangy zest of the lemon is complemented and balanced perfectly by the, the kind of crispy sugar coating on the outside of the muffin. So as you take a bite of the lemon muffin, you get the, the crispness that then gives way to the light, refreshing, uh, fruity quality on the inside. Can I say that is an excellent choice? I say, I already knew that. Thank you very much. Um, so can, can, I have the, can I have the lemon? Can I, can I have it now? And they say, well, well no. No. Um, uh, you just bought the description of the lemon. Uh, you handed over your money. I've, I've now explained to you, I've given you all the information you need to know about, about that muffin. You should be satisfied with that. Go on your way, good sir. To which I say, no, 
I want the muffin. I came here for the muffin. I don't just want information about the muffin. I don't just want to know the ingredients that went into the muffin. I don't want you to describe to me the taste of the muffin. I want to eat my muffin. (laughs) A relationship with God is just that. It's not just having a set of information, someone describing to you what uh, is true about God, someone describing to you uh, forgiveness, someone describing to you a certain set of beliefs that are true, okay, I'll take hold of that, uh, and a certain set of practices, and that just sums up Christianity. Christianity is having your cake and eating it. It's knowing about God, and it's knowing the truth, But it's far more than that. It's knowing God in person. It's knowing him. And at the point that Jesus died, that's when a set of dramatic changes took place so that we can not just know about God from a distance, but that we can have a personal relationship with him. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Peter there describes how Jesus Christ died once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you, to bring us to God. The, the purpose of it was that we might be brought near to God. No longer remote, not just having information. The purpose of him dying on the cross once and for all was that we might have a relationship with him. So how do we see that in the moment that Jesus died? And there are a number of things that we're going to look at and then a few uh, implications to draw out of that. First of all, we see that in verse 45, as Jesus was hanging on the cross, we're told of this event that happened actually a short distance away in the temple. It says, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Or literally, it was torn right down the middle. Okay. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all draw our attention to that that happened at the time when Jesus died on the cross. Why do we need to know that? Well, let's find out a little bit about that curtain. That curtain, according to what we see in the Old Testament and according to um, a Jewish historian as well called Josephus, would have been about 60 feet high. And it would have been about four inches thick. And what that curtain was there for, it was to separate the holiest parts of the temple where God dwelt, where God had his home, from everywhere else. So that's where God dwelt. The curtain was there to separate off that place. Behind the curtain, it was called the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And that's where God, in his tangible, glorious presence, was there, was dwelling. And so this massive and thick curtain was basically like a slightly flexible wall. I mean, it was massive, and uh, it said that horses tied to the curtain and going in opposite directions would not have been able to tear that curtain apart. So maybe that's where Levi Strauss got his idea from. But horses would not be able to tear it apart. And like I say, that separated the holiest place in the temple from the rest of the temple and actually from the rest of the world. And for Jews, living at that time... The the center of life was this temple. Everything about life was focused on the temple. And so uh, let's think about us for a moment. Let's think, like, politically, what is the center of this country? 
Or we might say some, the Houses of Parliament. With devolution, maybe less so, but the Houses of Parliament in London, that's the kind of political centre of the country. What's the, what's the economic centre? What's the, the kind of the money focus in this country? The centre of economic life, perhaps that would be the, the Bank of England or the Treasury or the Stock Exchange or maybe before too much longer, our own mattresses. Um, but that's kind of the economic centre. What about the cultural centre of this country? Is that, is that football stadiums? Is that music venues? Shopping centres? Is that Ikea? Kind of places people go because they want to spend, I don't know why, but they want to kind of spend time uh, there in leisure and all the rest of it. Uh, what about the religious centre? What is the religious centre of this country? And uh, I've got no idea. I think traditionally... Uh, we'd probably say um, Canterbury Cathedral, uh, but maybe other places, and I don't suppose there's any consensus on that issue uh, nowadays. And what about holidays? Where do people go? What, where's the kind of the leisure center? So, uh, or, or where do people go for holidays? Do I hear a, a, a shout out for Cornwall? Anyone going or been to Cornwall recently? Anyone going to the Lake District? Anyone to Scarborough? Is, uh, well, maybe the center holiday-wise is somewhere else. Or maybe anyone who's going on holiday has already gone. Um, but so, so where is, well, who knows? For some, maybe Cleethops. For some, um, Costa del Sol. Um, so for us, well, what, what is the center of life in this country? Uh, it's kind of any number of different places. But the center of life for Jews was the temple. The temple was everything. It was the focus of life. And so you get a psalm like Psalm uh, 84, which begins, how lovely is your dwelling place? How my soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. Oh, that's where I want to be. That's where holidays are. That's where we worship God. That's where stuff happens. That's where I want to be. That's where I go. I, I want to be near to God. And so I'm going to the temple. Problem is, there's a curtain. There's a curtain. There's a, there's a barrier it's almost like a sign saying, no entry, actually. You can come close, but you can't come that close. You can't come that close to God. Between all of us and God, there's a, there's a barrier. Because God is holy and perfect and pure, and we aren't. We're sinful and greedy and full of our own rebellion. So, a barrier was in place, a curtain. God, therefore, is holy and separate. He's remote. He's inaccessible. But when Jesus died, that curtain was torn in two. It's almost like God was saying, that way of relating to me has now gone. I'm coming out of the Holy of Holies. God is coming out. We can go in. So what does this mean? What does this mean for us today? It means this. Wherever we are, in Jesus, and because of his blood, we can confidently enter God's presence. Let's look at how the writer to the Hebrews puts it in Hebrews chapter 10. And looking there from verse 19. The writer says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. 
And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere faith, with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, we, by his blood, have confidence to enter the very presence of God. So wherever we are, we can know closeness, intimacy with him. It means we've got confidence to approach him. It means we've got confidence to pray. It means that we can expect him to make himself known in our lives personally and powerfully. It also means this, that wherever we go, we can confidently expect that God is with us. God is not in a box. God is on the move. And so if for any of us here today, we feel that God in some way is, is calling us out of our comfort zone, calling us to, to head somewhere new or do something different, we can be confident that if God is calling us to it, he goes with us. See, Jesus said to his disciples after his death and resurrection, he said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Can you imagine what that would be like for a Jew to hear at that time? Because the whole point for a Jew was not to go, it was to come. Come to Jerusalem. Come to the temple. Come and see. Come and partake here. We've come to Jerusalem. We're on our way up. We're going to the dwelling place of God. That's what the center of life is. That's, that's where we kind of get our identity. That's where we feel safe. That's where we want to be. We want to be near to God. So we, we're coming to Jerusalem. And Jesus says, go. Go to the ends of the earth. And he says, go and make disciples of all nations. I think, go? I don't really want to. I want to be close to you, oh God. And sometimes we can have that mentality. Because religion says, come and see. Come and see. But God says, go tell, and I will be with you until the very end of the age. I promise to be with you. There was one point where, where Moses in the Old Testament said to God, if you don't go with us, Lord, don't send us up from this place. And God said, my presence will go with you. And it's the same, and even more powerfully the same, for us today in Jesus. So if God is calling you out of a comfort zone, if God is calling you to be somewhere different, that feels a bit more isolated now. I feel I'm not as close to the action. Maybe I'm not as close to to the Jubilee Center because that's the special place. No, there there are no special places anymore because God has made his dwelling amongst us. It's not come and see, come and see. It's go and tell and I'm with you wherever you set your feet So remember that. If God is calling you out of your comfort zone to go somewhere new, remember that the curtain was torn in two. And remember that your relationship with God is not not affected by how close you are to a building or how close you are uh, to this place. So the curtain was torn in two. We also see a second remarkable thing that took place at the death of Jesus, and that is what Jesus himself said in verse 46. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. This is a statement that actually only Luke records. Luke particularly wants to draw our attention to what Jesus 
said here. Um, other Gospels kind of refer to Jesus crying out in a loud voice and giving up his spirit, uh, but don't kind of quote exactly what Jesus said. But we have it here uh, in Luke, and it's amazing for a number of reasons. It's amazing because of what Jesus said. He's quoting a psalm in the Old Testament. He's quoting Psalm 31, which is a psalm uh, expressing the experience of a righteous person who is going through suffering and is confidently calling out to God for deliverance. And so uh, in, in Psalm uh, 31 verse, uh, or we can read from a few verses earlier, from verse 3. Um, Since you are my rock and my fortress, for the sake of your name, lead me and guide me. Free me from the trap that is set for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Redeem me, O Lord, the God of truth. And as the psalm unfolds, you can read the whole psalm, you can see that this person is really suffering. But this person is also really confident in God, in God being with him, and in God's future deliverance of him. So, it's amazing because Jesus is, is hanging on the cross. For three hours now, there has been darkness. It's almost like nature itself is testifying to the seriousness of the hour by, by, by saying that the sun stopped shining or the sun was obscured. This is a dark time as Jesus hung on the cross. And as Jesus is hanging on the cross, when we saw earlier uh, about Jesus becoming our substitute, we know that Jesus was taking upon himself the fullness of God's wrath, God's uh, righteous anger against all sin uh, in the world was laid upon Jesus in that window of time. Jesus became sin. He became the most dejected, wretched man in history at that point in time. He was despised and rejected not only by his friends, but by God himself. And so the other Gospels record how as Jesus was hanging on the cross earlier on, he quotes another psalm, Psalm 22, and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is what he was experiencing at that time. God had turned away. He's experiencing punishment that we deserved. But, amazingly, Jesus here is still addressing God as his Father. The relationship that he has with God, even though he's suffered this darkness, that relationship with God has not ceased. So even after three hours of being under his judgment and wrath, as he hung on the cross, completely alone and rejected, he was still trusting in God. He was still calling out to God, you're my father. He might have said, why have you forsaken me? But he began by saying, my God, my God. Here, Jesus is declaring his confidence. This is horrific, Father, but I know that you're going to vindicate me. I know that you are going to deliver me from this trap that has been set for me, and I will be rescued from this. I will be redeemed. I will be raised to new life three days later. 
It's also amazing, not just because of what Jesus said, but how Jesus said it. He said it with a loud voice. Again, he'd been hung on the cross for three hours. The, the process of death was one of uh, uh, suffocating as well as blood loss and exposure. It would have been tremendously physically demanding to say anything very loud. The word excruciating has been come up with to describe what it's like to be crucified. To experience crucifixion is excruciating. And yet Jesus, he's not hesitant, he's not doubting, but with conviction and certainty, he is calling out, Father, with a loud voice. He didn't die timidly. He didn't die scared that he might be eternally forgotten. He fully expected that his self-sacrifice would be accepted, that he would be welcomed into his kingdom. So what does that mean for us today? Well, when Jesus faced the crisis of the cross, it was towards the Father, not away from him, that he turned. And that reveals the depth and the, the inseparable relationship that the Son of God had with God the Father. God the Son, God the Father, still relating even at this massive point of crisis. So, whenever we are in crisis, under pressure, feeling alone, we can know that God is with us. That's what this serves to to show us. It reminds us, it reminds those of us who are following Christ, that God is present and God is our Father even when life is grim to the utmost and even when God cannot easily be seen. Whenever we face crisis or are under pressure, we can turn towards God, not away from him. Again, previously we've looked at how Jesus is our example. And here, he is being a wonderful example to us. Someone suffering horrendously, and yet in it, knowing God. And in the moment of dying, in the moment of his death, knowing that confidence. And so, for us, each one of us, unless... God comes to wrap up history before this happens. Each one of us is destined to die. Each of us is destined to uh, maybe not experience uh, the horrors that Jesus was going through, but still experience the process of death, which might well be uh, uncomfortable, totally unpleasant, even horrific. But in the midst of that, people who know Jesus can die well because God's father heart for us God's relationship with us is not in doubt and the destination is not in doubt so wherever we are we can know God whenever we are in crisis in great times whenever we face anything we can know God, no relationship with him. Thirdly, we see something else remarkable. We see the reaction to people in the immediate aftermath when Jesus had died. And so we see, for example, the centurion in verse 47. The centurion, seeing what had happened, 
praised God and said, Surely this man, surely this was a righteous man. Luke wants to draw our attention to how people reacted to Jesus, uh, for, uh, like I say, in the immediate aftermath of his death. And he particularly draws our attention to this guy, the, the centurion. He was the man who was responsible, in command over other soldiers, to ensure that Jesus and the two criminals crucified either side of him actually died. This is the, the execution squad. That's their grim responsibility. Remarkable then that the centurion starts to see something. At the point of Jesus' death, this man began to know God. We aren't told exactly what happened to him and whether or not he he fully came through into a relationship with him. But we see some remarkable things. We see the fact that he praised God. He looked up at Jesus on the cross. He saw this mangled and disfigured body. But he began to see that there was something glorious about this man's death. There was something praiseworthy about it. The cross looks like foolishness to Greeks. It looks like weakness to Jews. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. On the face of it, this looks like utter defeat and folly. But the more we truly get to know God and what was happening at the cross, the more we understand that in fact it was a demonstration of God's power and wisdom to transform any life. He said, Surely this was a righteous man. That kind of carries with it the sense, if we, can, if we look at what Matthew and Mark recount as well, it says, it kind of carries a sense that he was saying, he was a good man. And he was quite right in calling God his father. It's quite amazing. At this point, the man, the person on earth, with the most insight into what God was doing and into what was happening there, was not a Jewish high priest, was not even a priest of any sort, wasn't even um, a Jew from the holiest tribe, the tribe of Levi. He wasn't a Jew at all. He wasn't an observer who just happened to be passing by. The man with most insight was a Roman soldier who was responsible to ensure that Jesus and the two other criminals died. Is that man worthy of coming to God? Is he worthy of knowing Jesus? Surely there would be other candidates who would come before him because of the responsibility that he had. So what does this show us? What does the centurion's reaction reveal to us? It means for us this. Whoever we are, we can know God. The way is open to God for all to come. Jesus' blood is what has torn through that curtain. And it was only that once a year... One person, the high priest, could go behind that curtain, could go into the holiest place to meet with 
God in his manifest presence. One person, the holiest person, the high priest, only once a year could go through the curtain. Now the curtain has been torn. And men like this centurion can enter in. Women like those who've been following from Galilee can enter in and know him. Whoever we are, we can enter into not just having information about God, not just having an arm's length knowledge of a, a little bit what he's like, but knowing him personally. Now the only way, the only way to that is through Jesus and through what he's done. Like before, the only way in was through the curtain. Now the only way in is through Jesus and his blood. But that means, gloriously, the way is open to anyone who will accept what Jesus has done on the cross. We see also that there were people um, who had standed, who'd witnessed what had happened. They'd seen what happened. They'd seen Jesus' crucifixion. They'd seen the darkness. They'd heard what Jesus said from the cross. And they, they'd gathered to witness this sight, we find in verse 48. They saw what took place. They beat their breasts and went away. In a sense, the first step to knowing God is that step of realizing these folk realizing what have we done? What have we done? It would appear too late, but actually we have crucified our Messiah. We have killed the righteous one. We had killed the one who who had come to save us. They may not understand everything at this point, but they're beating their breasts because that is the, the kind of traditional sign of kind of mourning and contrition. We shouldn't have done this. What have we done? And again, the first step to knowing God is to come to him in repentance. I say, God, here's my mess. Here's what I've done wrong. Here's why I need to be baptized. I acknowledge all of that, Lord. What would seem to happen later on, on the day of Pentecost, is Peter would stand up, one of the disciples would stand up, he would explain what happened, and maybe some of the same people call out, well, what can we do? They were cut to the heart. What must we do to be saved? And at that point, they find out. Repent and be baptized. Repent, put your faith in Jesus. So, in conclusion, God wants a relationship with us. Maybe God today is just wanting to remind you who already have a relationship with God, who already know Him, to be refreshed in that and not allow it just to slip back into a set of dry beliefs, a set of dry kind of disciplines and practices. I'm a Christian, so I do this. I'm a Christian, so I must believe that. No, God has saved us so that we can know him. It's more than that. It's more than just forgiveness. It's more than just, come on, read your Bible. It's know God. You know him. He's your shepherd. You hear his voice. He speaks. And we know his presence in our lives. Maybe God is wanting to just refresh us in that this morning. Or perhaps for the first time, God would choose this morning to tap you on the shoulder and say, do you actually know me? I want to know you. I want you to be in a relationship with me 
Won't you come? Won't you lay down your life, your sin, your mess, and say to God, God, I accept what Jesus has done in my place. I accept that he is God in the flesh, came to earth in order to die. He went to the cross in my place so that he would die there suffering punishment that I deserve so that I might know forgiveness, eternal life, freedom from all guilt, that I might know the one true God, not just now in this life, but in the life to come. Maybe God is tapping you on the shoulder to say that. Because wherever you are, wherever you are in life, whatever you're experiencing at this point in your life, and whoever you are, God has a relationship for us. It wasn't enough that our sins should be forgiven. God wants us to know him. He wants to know us. Let's pray together.